So a genetic test is anything that looks at your DNA, basically, and there are lots of ways that we can look at DNA um, and there are lots of types of genetic testing that you can have done. But at the, at the essence, it's really something that looks at your DNA um, and usually around how your DNA changes and what changes that might have on you or symptoms that you might have of a disease or ways that your body works. This week on Science for the People, we are delving into genetic testing for yourself and your future children. We'll be speaking with Jane Tiller, lawyer and genetic counselor, about genetic tests that are available to the public and what to do with the results of these tests. Then we'll speak with Dr. Noam Shamran, Associate Professor at the Sackler School of Medicine at Tel Aviv University, about technological advancements his lab has made in the genetic testing of fetuses. What kind of genetic tests are available to people, to the general public, if they want to have a look at their DNA and see what's going on? Yeah, so generally, I guess there's two types of genetic testing that can be done at the moment. And one of them is what's called a clinical test. And that's something where you might go to a genetics clinic or your doctor or your specialist might organize a test that's sent off to a lab. um, And they look at, um, usually they do a blood test and they look at your DNA in your blood cells. um, And they will tell you whether you have changes that relate to disease usually. The other type of testing that's becoming more popular now is testing that you get online, um, which you can do by sending off a cheek swab or a saliva sample. And those online tests can look at anything from your ancestry to um, nutrigenomics, which is, you know, how different foods might be processed by your body and things like that, as well as some tests that can be done online, which can tell you about disease risks as well. They ensure that your body works and grows correctly. They have roles in protecting against cancer and other diseases. But when one of those letters changes, when DNA is being copied, it's kind of like a spelling error in a sentence. Sometimes that spelling error doesn't make much difference. Um, Sometimes it makes a really big difference if it means that a protein isn't formed correctly and therefore um, can't do the functions in the cell that it needs to do. So what would cause one of these letters in your DNA to change in the first place? Mm, There's a few things that can cause it. Um, And DNA is uh, wound up in something called a a double helix, and there's two strands of DNA. And they are um, linked together with each other. And when a cell divides um, and grows in the body, as it divides, that DNA helix unwinds and it copies itself, and one copy of each goes into each cell, and then you have a complete copy of all your DNA in each of the cells when, you, when your cells have divided. When that happens and it unwinds and, and copies itself, sometimes uh, the wrong letter is joined up um, or there, there's something put in, in place in the wrong spot, um, and that can happen as we get older and our, our cell machinery gets a little bit older and isn't working quite as well. We can accumulate these changes over time as our cells get older. There's also environmental things that can cause that to happen. So UV damage or other chemicals um, can cause uh, changes in the DNA and and damage to the DNA that can lead to diseases and things like cancer. So the results of a genetic test would give you these letters in your DNA for a particular person who ever took the test. And so you can detect changes in certain letters that would indicate that maybe there 
is potential for a disease to develop? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. So we know that there are certain certain changes in our DNA that are associated with certain diseases. So there are many, many diseases and there are um, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of changes in our DNA. Um, and so researchers over time have looked at people with disease or with cancer and they've found out what certain changes can be associated with what certain diseases. So, for example, cystic fibrosis is one that um, a lot of people are familiar with. We know what what gene it is. So gene is a, just a, um, a section of DNA. We know that that gene, certain changes in that gene mean that somebody will have cystic fibrosis. We know, for example, um, the BRCA genes, which a lot of people know about is, is a breast and ovarian cancer gene. Angelina Jolie famously had this um, gene change and she had her breasts removed because of the breast cancer risk. Um, we know that there are changes in that gene and that people with those changes are more likely to develop cancer than people um, who don't have those changes. And so they, they are, they know some of those changes and they know exactly where they are and where to look. And there's lots of changes that we don't know what they mean or we don't know whether they are connected to disease or, or whether they will cause disease or not. Okay. So when someone chooses to do, say, a clinical genetic test, who um, has access to those test results? Is it just the physician who performs the test? Are there other people involved in the testing process who also are aware of the results? Mm. If you get a clinical test done, um, then obviously the, the laboratory where your test is done will know the results. Um, those labs have strict privacy um, controls and they will also sometimes go into your electronic medical record now depending what country you're in um in north america it's a bit different than it is in australia at the moment um but those tests can go into um, your medical record um other people that might have access to those tests sometimes include insurers so insurance companies um can ask for genetic test results um and depending on country you're in again um, and depending on uh, your type of insurance sometimes um, they can require disclosure of those tests too. Wow so what are the ramifications of that? Mm. So uh, in Australia um, we have a slightly different system to North America. Um, in Australia we have uh, private health or we have public health cover um, and we have private health insurance, um, which is not affected by genetic test results, um, but our public health is, is quite good. And so in Australia, the issue is around life insurance companies having access to genetic test results and life insurance companies will discriminate on the basis of genetic test results when people are applying for new cover. And that means, for example, if you have one of these BRCA gene changes um, and you try to apply for life insurance, a life insurance company might double your premium or deny you cover altogether because of your risk of cancer. Um, in Canada, uh, you guys have a fairly new piece of legislation which protects people against discrimination in life insurance, um, and that's a really great thing. Um, in the US, they are in a similar situation to Australia where life insurance companies can discriminate on that basis. So that's a, a pretty big issue when people are thinking about getting genetic testing 
often they will go away and, and sort out their life insurance situation before they have the testing. Um, but if they don't do that and they have a genetic test, um, then it can cause some problems. And if someone chooses to take a genetic test in Australia and they also choose not to disclose the results of their tests when they're applying for life insurance, well, what are the ramifications of that? Yeah, so if people don't disclose and they have a genetic test that is considered relevant, so it um, increases your risk of, of a disease, then that would be considered fraud. And under uh, insurance law, fraud can mean that your whole policy is voided. And so it's, it's really significant. Uh, if you are asked to disclose, uh, you have to disclose it if you know it. Do insurance companies have access to some sort of database just to double check um, if someone has or hasn't taken a genetic test? No, so they can't. They can't at the time go and check that database, and we don't have a um, we don't have a register per se of genetic test results. What can happen though is if you make a claim on your life insurance policy, um, an insurer can then. You have to allow an insurer to access your medical records um, and sometimes at the end when they're assessing a claim, things can come up and if they see um, that you've had genetic testing and that that genetic testing was in place before you took the cover out, um, that's when the fraud claim would come through. Other than when you're applying, it will happen down the track when they're being asked to pay out. Well, what about online genetic tests? I would assume that more people would have access to those results. Yeah, so that's really interesting and it depends um, really on the company that you get the test from. Um, it depends on their privacy policy and it depends on what you then do with the results you receive. So some of the big companies in North America for online testing are things like Ancestry.com, 23andMe. Um, 23andMe does disease testing, so for things like BRCA, um, some limited uh, disease testing. Some of those companies will uh, ask you if you'd like to or whether you consent to your genetic tests being uh, shared for research purposes. Now, this is usually done in a what's uh, called de-identified way. So uh, your results will be passed on without your name and your personal details attached. Um, a lot of people say yes to these things happening. They say, yes, I'm happy for my results to be used for research. Most people um, are pretty altruistic about things like that. There have been a few cases um, last year, for example, 23andMe signed a deal with GlaxoSmithKline, which is a, a pharmaceutical company, for a very large amount of money um, to access their results, again, on a de-identified basis. Um, but that made some people a bit nervous because they didn't think that saying yes to research meant um, their data would be sold to a pharmaceutical company. Um, and so there are some questions around who will have access um, to those type of um, databases. Some of these databases like Ancestry and 23andMe are amassing millions, millions and millions of people's worth of DNA data. And that starts to become very valuable from a research point of view. Um, and also from a law enforcement point of view. So uh, the Golden State Killer case is one um, that most people heard of in the US last year where a, a um, serial rapist and murderer that had become a case was found through, um, through testing. Now, that wasn't through a 
a commercial site, so um, Ancestry didn't release the data to the police. It was through an open source site where somebody had uploaded their data voluntarily onto that site to try and find relatives, um, and the police used that that way of tracking down um, this suspect. Um, so that's a question as well. You know, if you take the data and then you upload it onto some of these sharing sites, um, no one will be able to download your data per se, but people will be able to start matching with people who are close to them genetically and, and start to narrow down on, on different people through that way. In your opinion, how reliable are the results of these genetic tests? If you have a, gen- a clinical genetic test, um, that will through a, a clinically accredited laboratory. Those are very, very accurate um, and you can be certain about those things. If you start going to an online company, it really depends on the company. And sometimes as a consumer, you don't know um, clicking on a button online whether you're going through a company that's got reliable labs, whether they've got reliable interpretation. Um, because the first question is, does the lab do the test right? You know, is the lab protocol very strong? Is it finding the right genetic changes? And the second step is, is the person who's looking at those changes interpreting them correctly? So are they telling you that you have disease risk based on that and are they right about it? Um, Companies like 23andMe um, have very reliable testing, but there are hundreds of companies out there which um, may be offering different types of testing, which may be cheaper, um, and it's very hard to know just because someone's offering an online test that those results are reliable. Um, And last year a paper came out actually where um, a number of cases were taken where they had online genetic testing done and that genetic testing showed that they were susceptible to disease. They were then taken to a clinical lab to verify them and 40% of those cases um, weren't found to be real, so they they didn't validate in that clinical lab. Um, And so there is some question often around the reliability and the accuracy of those tests. Why do you think that is? Uh, Do you think that the results from online tests are interpreted by trained geneticists or do you think maybe there's some sort of automated process being used just to speed up the whole entire process itself. Absolutely, there are automated processes um, at some point, um, and there are there are lots of really good tools which are used to to filter out. Um, initially, um, there is a lot of data that comes out of um, sequencing or, or looking at genetic testing and genetic test results, um, and there are tools that can be used to filter out um, a lot of that data and to to leave what might be um, significant test results. Um, Good laboratories um, and and good testing facilities will have uh, trained people looking at those results. Um, Like I say, you you can't be sure necessarily who is doing the interpreting. Um, When there are are tests being looked at that are very well known, um, there's not a lot of interpretation that needs to be done. Um, but when you start getting to genetic changes that we don't really know as much about or the information is conflicting, it really does require an expert to, to look at all the evidence behind those changes to see whether um, we're sure that those changes are associated with disease. Um, and we just don't know for some of these companies whether they are doing that or not. 
Do you think the fact that these online tests are just so affordable and so accessible contributes to the fact that um, a lot of the results are being interpreted inaccurately? Maybe these companies just don't um, have the capacity, um, the personnel, to uh, assess all the yeah. results? Very possible. And and it is becoming, you know, a really competitive market. Um, the fact that you can get genetic testing done now for $99, you know, it's, it's very affordable. It's very cheap. Um, some of the bigger companies which are offering very high-quality tests are actually selling tests at a loss in terms of um, the cost to them of, of doing the testing and the interpretation. And they're doing that because they want to capture the market. Um, they want to amass big databases of, of people because, like I said, that's a really valuable thing. But the actual cost per test is something that um, many companies are making uh, a direct loss on. And so if other companies are trying to compete and trying to bring the costs even lower, um, it is very possible that, yes, they are uh, they're automating as much as possible. They are not taking the time to look carefully um, at some of these variants and maybe they don't have the personnel required to do that. Do you think that, um, say, someone purchases a DNA test from 23andMe, do you think the results they get, they're provided from, by a geneticist or whomever, um, are easy to interpret? The test you get, or the results you get from 23andMe are reasonably easy to interpret if you're only um, looking at exactly uh, what they report to you on. So there are two types of data you can get from 23andMe when you do the test. The first lot is um, they will send you a document which contains um, it's pretty pictures um, and summaries of your results and your risks, um, some explanations about what it does and doesn't tell you. If you read that information very carefully and you only look at that information, um, it, is, it is accurate, it's pretty good. The second lot of information that you can get is your raw data, um, and this is basically all those letters that we were talking about. You can get a download that um, tells you a lot of information about those letters. Now, I, looking at that, couldn't tell you anything about your um, genetic risk. Certainly um, the average person, consumer who has that information, can't just look at that and find out about their risk. And that's when people start sometimes uploading that raw data into a third-party piece of software, um, and that software will then read through the data and tell them um, what it has picked up in terms of some possible risk uh, risk variants or changes in the DNA. Now, that's when there starts to be um, a lot of issues with interpretation, with accuracy, um, and with uh, people trying to understand themselves without a genetic background what their risk is. So this party software might throw up that you have this variant and that's going to make you have disease and that you've got this change and that might cause this problem. Um, that person has no way of knowing whether that's real, has no way of knowing um, what the risk is um, that that gives them um, and, and what to do about that. And that's where there's a lot of issues coming up with people either take action because they think something's wrong um, go to a genetics clinic and, and um, or their doctor and, and try and get some more information. Their doctor may or may not have genetics experience, may not may or may not really know how to help them, um, and genetics clinics are finding um, a lot of increased workload from people turning up with these results that, that no one really knows if they're real or not. 
Are the results that the consumer receives, are they typically in probabilities? Like you're 50% likely to develop this particular form of cancer, or do you have results that are, you know, black and white? Um, generally, they are. So there are some there are some genetic changes which uh, diagnose a condition. Um, and so there are things like Huntington's disease, um, which is a, a progressive neurological disorder, um, it is it is diagnosed by looking at your genetics. Um, and if you have um, a certain number of, of uh, repeats of a certain genetic sequence, um, then you know that you will develop Huntington's disease. Um, now, you can do that test when you're 20, um, but generally Huntington's disease doesn't uh, start to show symptoms until 40s or usually 50 years of age um, and beyond. Um, and so that's one example of something where it is diagnostic. It will, it will tell you that it's for sure, um, but it won't happen for a little while. Most other things like um, cancer predisposition genes are more probabilities, like you say. If you have a particular change in the BRCA gene that we were talking about, your risk of breast cancer goes from about um, 13%, say, in the general population to about 70%. Um, in, in someone with one of these changes. And so it's not diagnostic. You don't know that you'll get cancer for sure. It's just your increased risk is, is quite significant. Would you say that someone should base life decisions based on the results of one of these online tests? I would say people should be very uh, cautious about doing that. Um, there are... There are a number of recommendations that will come with these these tests um, and they're, they're good things that people can do. There are good interventions that people can take and there are good preventative strategies that can be taken if the results are real. Um, but you really want to know that the results are real before you start taking some of those steps. So, for example, um, coming back to, for example, the BRCA gene, if you have a change in the BRCA gene and you're... Um, in your 30s, you might want to start thinking about um, surgery like Angelina Jolie had um, some women choose to remove their breasts and have them reconstructed to, to significantly reduce their breast cancer risk. Um, or they might go into intensive screening with MRI, um, mammogram depending on their age. Um, around 40, when they finished having their family, um, women often choose to have their ovaries and fallopian tubes removed to decrease their ovarian cancer risk. But these are significant steps that you really would only take if you knew that they were real test results. Um, and that's a, it's a, an extreme example because there's surgery involved, but it's a good illustrative example of the fact that they're very good preventative steps, but you certainly don't want to be taking them without knowing that the genetic test result you have is real. Um, and so for some other things, um, it also follows that you want to make sure that you know your result is real before you start um, taking drastic steps on the basis of, of results that come in from that kind of source. Um, if there are results that you have or there is significant family history of, of genetic conditions, um, then you should be speaking to a genetics clinic about those things before taking steps like that. Well, what about a case where you're provided with only a probability, let's say the probability is very high? Of cancer, for example? Sure. 
Yeah, so you know, if you're provided with a probability and it's very high, um, again, that probability will be linked to research that's been done in that space on that genetic change. Um, and if that was a clinical test and you, you had it done through your specialist and it'd be done through an accredited lab um, and that change was known to be associated with a, an 80% chance of, of having cancer, then you would absolutely want to act on that um, and, and take the steps that were available to you. But if you get a result back from, you know, dnadodge.com and it says you have an 80% chance of developing cancer, um, you'd want to make sure that that result was a real result and that it really increased your risk of cancer before you actually um, took any drastic steps. So how would you go about ensuring that it, it is a real result? Yeah. So um, if you've got something that comes from a, a, an online test or, or a, a genetic testing company, um, you would go to a genetics clinic um, and you'd say to them, I've, I've had this test and it's told me that I've got this this um, result. Now, genetics clinics, sometimes there'll be waiting lists um, and sometimes there'll be significant wait times involved because there are um, often a lot of resource restrictions. Um, but they will be able to have a look at your results um, and they'll make a decision about whether um, it looks like a real result, whether it's something um, that should be retested and they'll be able to facilitate real testing in a clinical lab if that's something that needs to be done um, and they can provide recommendations. Sometimes there are tests that are done that we see all the time in genetics clinics and we know, um, you know, that's not something that people need to be concerned about or it comes up a lot and um, and we can give them general advice about, about those results. But you can't. You can't really say until you see each individual test. So is that something you do as a genetic counsellor? Yes. Well, the counselling side of genetic counselling is something I'd like to learn more about. Does that involve some kind of therapeutic um, assistance for any clients or customers who have to deal with kind of the emotional distress of learning that they have been diagnosed with something or that they have a high probability of being diagnosed with something? Yeah, so genetic counselling is a bit of a, a funny term. Um, genetic counsellors really help people to understand um, genetic risk, to understand genetic test results and to make decisions about genetic testing and following genetic testing. Um, so they kind of help with, I guess, breaking down the genetics for people who don't have um, a strong understanding of genetics. Um, and it also assists people with a lot of the emotional familial and difficult aspects of uh, genetic testing and, and genetic test results. Um, so as you can imagine, genetics runs in families and so genetic information really is family information and often there are complex relationships in families um, that can be difficult to navigate when it comes to sharing information. And also there's often a lot of distress um, that goes with learning about your genetic risk, making decisions about um, surgery and other kind of um, life events and things like that. And so a genetic counsellor is trained in the information and the genetics and the scientific side of things and also in supporting people through um, those difficult emotional journeys. What kind of clients do you typically get as a genetic counsellor? Yeah, so it, it really depends what area you work in, but all sorts of people. Um, there are, for example, in a, a familial cancer clinic, you will see people who um, 
have a strong history of cancer or they've developed cancer themselves um, or they have someone in their family who has a cancer gene. And so um, that's all sorts of people um, who just might come from the community. If you are working in prenatal setting, for example, you might have mothers who are pregnant who've had their initial um, 12-week ultrasound and their um, serum tests and they are found to have an increased risk of having a child who has a genetic condition um, and you'll speak to them about that. Um, it really it depends what area you work in, but regular people. <laughs> so for a disorder that doesn't currently have a cure, do you think it is beneficial for a person to benefit um, from learning about their likelihood of developing it, this particular disorder? Or in cases yeah, where you can't take any kind of preventative action, do you think it's still beneficial for that person to know their genetic results? This is a really personal decision. Um, some people really like to know about that because they can prepare and, and plan for the likelihood of what's coming up. So Huntington's disease is a great example of something where, uh, like I said, if you have the test and, and you're found to have that, that, those changes, you know that you will develop Huntington's at some stage. Um, and that can be distressing and that can, um, that can be difficult to, to process. But some people want to know so that they can make decisions um, that they wouldn't otherwise be able to make if they didn't know about that. There's no cure funding to this um, at the moment. You know, there's nothing you can do to ensure that you um, don't get it. There are things you can do to uh, treat some of the symptoms of Huntington's. Um, if you know that you have that diagnosis, then you might be able to recognise those symptoms early and that treatment can start at an earlier stage than if you waited until it was quite severe. Some people would rather not know because they don't want it hanging over their heads. They don't want to um, have every decision in their life shaped by this knowledge of, of impending doom um, of something that's coming. Um, and that really is a personal decision. Um, people who are thinking about having testing for Huntington's because it's a dominant condition, um, it means that uh, people often will have had a parent go through Huntington's when they're thinking about having testing. They've seen what that looks like in somebody um, and they have to then think through the implications of, of knowing whether they are going to develop it or not. Um, so it is something that um, a lot of people uh, go one way and a lot of people go the other way, um, but some people certainly do want to know. Some people want to be able to plan and think about the future and and do that with all of the information available to them. Okay, I have a two-part question for you. Uh, first, have you taken a genetic test? And then would you want to know if you, um, you know, if you could, if, would you want to have a diagnosis for Huntington's disease or any other kind of disorder or disease um, that does not have a cure through a genetic test? Number one, I have not taken a test. Um, I actually get asked this a little bit um, and I've never had a need to have a clinical genetic test um, and I haven't yet ever done any ancestry or other testing. Um, I think genetics is exciting and we've talked today about some of the risks and some of the issues and um, but there is a, a lot of really amazing stuff that we now can figure out with genetic testing and there's a lot of... Um, amazing preventative potential of genetic testing. Um, I haven't yet had the need to have any of that kind of testing and I haven't yet decided to do any of the other 
um, online testing for myself. Um, the second question is a little bit trickier, and I think depending on the day I feel differently and depending on the, uh, the type of condition we're talking about, I feel differently. Um, I think... I think knowledge is power and I think there are really important aspects of knowing about what's, you know, what's possible, um, knowing about things early, seeking any treatment options early. Um, but I also think uh, in our culture we get, get a little bit philosophical. I think we get to the point where we try and control our all risk in our lives um, and I don't think that that's necessarily always the best way to do things. And so personally, um, depending on the type of condition it was um, and depending on my personal circumstances, whether I had children or other people that I wanted to think about um, in controlling that risk, um, I might go either way, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, well, all in all, I guess we kind of answered this question, but would you recommend genetic testing uh, online or clinical? I think I, rec I absolutely recommend that people who know that they have a risk um, and and that risk is for something where there are preventative things available, um, absolutely recommend pursuing genetic testing. Um, it is sometimes scary to think about, um, but if there are steps that you can take to prevent risk, um, then genetic testing really does give you that uh, power and that, that knowledge to take those things forward. Um, online genetic testing, I think people um, just need to take it with a grain of salt. You know, I think um, if they're interested in finding out about things like ancestry, that's very interesting. If they want to do some of the other tests, they just need to be aware what the limitations are. Um, they need to know um, that it's it's very difficult to know how reliable the results are, especially if it's one of those smaller, lesser-known companies. Um, and that uh, they're not getting absolute definitive answers by doing that um, and that they can't necessarily rely on what's going to come out of them. All right, Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jane Tiller, lawyer and genetic counselor. Up next, we have Dr. Noam Shamran, associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at Tel Aviv University. Noam, welcome to Science for the People. Hi. Okay, so can you tell me about the study you were involved in to develop a non-invasive procedure for finding genetic abnormalities in fetuses. Yes, I would love to. In my lab, we have developed a simple blood test where the entire genetic material or the DNA of the embryo could be read from beginning to end at week 10 of pregnancy. The idea behind it, it is that we will overcome tests which are invasive with some risk to the pregnancy and the embryo. And if we can overcome these uh, potential risky tests, we could uh, generate a simple, a simple procedure that can easily map the DNA, the genetic material of the embryo or future baby. Now, our test involves an algorithm uh, which I will be happy to uh, tell you more about. So can you explain the difference between invasive and non-invasive genetic testing? There are two types of invasive tests. One of them is called amniocentesis. The other one is called chorionic villus sampling or CVS. 
Actually, this is carried out between weeks 16 and 22. The CVS is carried out earlier. The amniocentesis is carried out later. With a long needle, the amniotic sac, sac is, is, is punched and, and some of the liquid is taken out. In that uh, liquid, there's the chromosomes or the DNA of the embryo, and this could be identified or screened for particular changes. Now, this is invasive because you use a needle to, to actually punch into the, the amniotic sac, and eventually it does involve some risk for the pregnancy and for the embryo, which could lead to uh, losing the baby eventually. Is there also risks to the mother? Less risk for the mother, but obviously this is a, an extremely stressful time for the mother and for the family just before the the test and, and a few days after the test as well. It, it's extremely stressful. We have undergone this with our uh, children. What kind of methods has your research group developed in this non-invasive kind of realm of genetic testing? Can you explain the blood tests a little bit further? So during pregnancy... There is a very small amount of uh, the mother's DNA floating in the plasma or serum and an even smaller amount of embryo DNA. So the ratio is uh, at week 10 is about 1 to 9. So 9 fractions of the DNA are from the mother and 1 fraction is from the embryo. And uh, we could take these uh, fractions and use advanced technologies. These advanced DNA technologies are called next-generation sequencing, NGS, or deep sequencing. And these uh, highly advanced reading abilities allow us to dig very deep into these sequences. And if you read deep enough, you have enough sequences of the embryo to reassemble them and to uh, rebuild the entire DNA of the embryo. So how is it that there is a proportion of DNA from the the fetus in the mother's blood? How does that work? So it's probably uh, uh, released from the placenta. Some of the DNA from the placenta is released, and and, uh, thanks to advanced technologies, it it is uh, now detectable. Uh, This was known for many years, so about 20 or 30 years, it's known that DNA and even RNA from the embryo is present in the mother's blood, but only now with the highly advanced reading technologies, we're able to read deep enough to uh, reassemble the entire DNA and also to tell it apart from the mother's DNA. How do you go about doing that? So this is uh, the uh, trick that we ran in our experiments. What we do is we take a reference DNA from the mother and from the father. And if we have the reference DNA, what we do is we take the mixed DNA from uh, the mother's plasma. And now uh, every short piece that we come up with uh, could be either associated with the mother or with the uh, embryo. And we, our algorithm actually uses statistical methods to figure out whether it's either more from the mother or more from the uh, embryo. And if we sum up all these uh, statistical values, we could quite confidently or significantly figure out whether it came from the embryo or from the mother. 
Now there's even more sophisticated uh, uh, parts to this algorithm because we should know whether it's a recessive or dominant mutation, whether it's a homozygous or heterozygous. And sometimes it's not even a change in the DNA in terms of change of a base or a letter there. Sometimes it's an insertion deletion. So it's a different type of mutation. So we also have to tell those apart from uh, from the other types of changes in the DNA. Why do you need to collect a, a blood sample from the father? So we use it as a, as a reference. Actually, in our experiments, we even took another test, and that's from uh, from the embryo as well, just, just during our experiments. If we take the mother and father, we have the reference DNA, and now the embryo could either have a mother or father DNA in different parts of the DNA, because obviously uh, the embryo is made up a half of the father's DNA and a half of the mother's DNA. Since we're looking or, or searching for point mutations in uh, detrimental uh, sites or those that could cause severe diseases, it's very important for us to know whether the particular site in the DNA came from the mother or father. So we're using it as a reference. So are you, in fact, predicting um, mutations or genetic abnormalities at the baby may have based on the parent's DNA? Uh, that's right. So after reading the entire DNA from beginning to end, we have the reference DNA of the embryo or the future baby. And now we have to compare it to a list of genetic mutations. Now, obviously, there's a very long list of genetic mutations, some of them extremely severe, other moderately, and, and, and we also have a list of non-severe mutations. Surely enough, we would look at the severe mutations, those that can cause detrimental effects to the embryo. And in particular, we look at those mutations that can cause extremely severe diseases and even death at an early age. These are extremely important uh, to identify first, and this is the information we give back to the physicians and, and the genetic uh, counselors. So any mutations you may find in the fetal DNA, um, they're inherited from the parents. So we're looking at inherited mutations. However, part of our algorithm also knows how to seek what is called uh, de novo mutations. De novo mutations are those that did not arrive from the mother or from the father. Those are the ones that actually were generated during the developmental process. Okay. Do you think that they're, that you're able to actually, um, confirm a diagnosis of the of the fetus using this uh, genetic information? So I think uh, we should first call it a screening test because uh, it's under development and we've only done uh, several families now. We haven't uh, carried out uh, an extremely widespread uh, test yet. So it is a screening test, uh, first of all. The other part is that um, it depends what type of mutation is. So some of them are with extremely high confidence. We could say other parts of the DNA are slightly masked. And uh, we would always like to confirm the mutations we identify with other technologies, surely in the first few years. What affects the accuracy of the results? What affects the accuracy of the results are the exact sites of the mutations. There are a very few parts of the DNA which are extremely difficult uh, to read, which are masked. Other parts that are more difficult to read are if the mutations, for example, are, are uh, of a heterozygous, heterozygous, both in, from the mother and from the father. 
these are a bit more difficult to overcome. However, we are now developing other techniques such as machine learning, which allows us to increase our sensitivity and specificity in these sites as well. So how confident are you that currently in the accuracy of your predictions? So we know which types of mutations we could uh, very close to 100% identify. And we have those that are uh, slightly less, which are, which are at about uh, an accuracy of 98, 99%. Uh, I should say that uh, we have been developing this for about four years now. Uh, there's several students in the lab working on it, and we really feel confident that in a few months we'll be able to identify most, if not all, types of mutations at, at 100% accuracy. So what exactly is involved in the analysis of the DNA results? Um, do you have members in your lab reading the results, or is it the algorithm that's actually spitting out like, the analysis results? How does it work? So our lab is divided into a computational side of the lab and an experimental side. We have uh, also physicians in the lab, and we are in a very close relationship with the hospitals affiliated to our uh, university and faculty. We really enjoy building these automatic algorithms, but I must say that at the end of the pipeline, we always have a team of experts sitting and discussing these mutations and identifying them. I think uh, algorithms, machine learning, deep learning are wonderful buzzwords. They work terrific, but at the end of the day, we always sit down and curate these changes by eye, by hand, and, and by discussions. And, uh, and we always consult the physicians and the genetic counselors. What should we insert into these lists of uh, detrimental mutations? How should this information be conveyed eventually to the family? Is this, are any of these actionable mutations, meaning that could something be done to prevent them or to deal with them? So it's a very complex uh, issues, not only on the algorithm side, but also on the a medical or clinical side. How long would you say it takes to go through the, the results, the genetic results of one person using this algorithm and using the, you know, members in your lab to double check the results? So I can tell you that when we speak with a geneticist in the clinic, they say that they need about one hour to go over a clinical case and it's never enough for them, even if we give them our organized list. So our goal is that each geneticist or genetic counselor would not spend more than 15 minutes to understand our, our data. So we work very hard to parse the data, to retrieve only relevant information, to bring it forward, uh, to make sure that every clinician or genetic counselor would not need, would not need more than 15 minutes to go over our data. And then if they have one hour allocated for a patient, the rest of the time, 45 minutes, would be spent to, to discuss these uh, mutations or findings with their patient. So we're really trying to ease their work and to bring their uh, professional uh, uh, team and work to spend most of their time uh, discussing with the family rather than parsing the data. Are you able to share the results um of the tests that you've conducted for some of these families? Just general yes, diagnoses you may have made or, or maybe mutations that you've found? Yes, we're an academic lab, so everything we do, we always share. Our First of all, our code is open. It's online. 
And the family, the mutations in the families we analyzed are also published and open source. So what kind of abnormalities have you found um, in the fetuses for these families? So I want to mention that um, we, we joined forces with the IVF PGD lab at one of the hospitals we work with. IVF is uh, in vitro fertilization and PGD is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. At this center, usually families with known point mutations arrive. These are mutations that were identified in these families and in order to select for non-mutated embryos, they undergo these processes. So they, they, they obviously they take the sperm and the egg for the IVF, and after um, the conception, they wait for a stage, an eight-stage cell. They take one cell from this uh, future embryo, and they try to identify whether that particular embryo has the uh, mutation they're selecting again. After reimplantation, these families have to undergo further examination to make sure that the non-mutated embryo is developing uh, in the in the particular uh, family. And in order to confirm there's no mutation there, these were our first samples which we which we uh, took for our experiment. And did you guys okay. find any mutations? So we identified some of the mutations. Obviously, this was experimental, so mm-hmm. this was not the only procedure they underwent. They also underwent chorionic uh, villus uh, sampling, CVS, to make sure that uh, the correct embryo was re-implanted. Re- re-implanted but we also confirmed it using our method and we made sure that we have 100% correspondence with the, uh, with the uh, other uh, methodologies used. So they chose to undergo both invasive and non-invasive prenatal genetic testing um, and they use the invasive form as, um, I guess, a reference to ensure the accuracy of the non-invasive form. Yes, that is, that's correct. Okay. So your, your lab isn't actually the first to come up with um, a non-invasive test for prenatal genetic, from, for prenatal genetic diagnoses, um, a blood test to do that. So what makes your blood test different from others that are available on the market? So there are a few wonderful tests now out there called NIPD or NIPT, non-invasive prenatal diagnosis. That's exactly what they do. They take a blood test and they seek embryo DNA at weeks 10 to 12 in the mother's blood. The thing is that they read, they, they look for particular chromosomes. So, for example, they read the DNA in the mother's blood, and if they see a slightly more chromosome 21, for example, at a significant level, they know that the mother doesn't have an extra copy of chromosome 21. Therefore, it must arrive from the embryo, and then they can conclude at a significant level that the embryo might have trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. They could do that for other chromosomes as well, 13 and 18. Recently, they also developed a test that could see even parts of a chromosome. But if we think about it, it's like looking at 
planet Earth from outer space and trying to identify whether there's an extra continent there. It's really looking at a very, very high resolution uh, at, at the DNA. So they're looking for extra chromosomes or extra parts of chromosomes. What we did in our test is look at a much higher magnification. So our resolution is much better. It's about one million times better than what is seen with current tests. So the NIPT test today only look at chromosomes or part of chromosomes. We really see point mutations. Every single nucleotide and base in the embryo or future baby, we could read from beginning to end. That's what's unique about our test. And you guys are able to detect monogenic diseases. Is that correct? That's correct. So we could see monogenic diseases. The current NIPT or NIPT tests cannot identify point mutations. They can't identify small insertion deletions like we do. I'm talking about a few nucleotide changes. It's just impossible to see with their current tests. Can you explain what a monogenic disease is and give us some examples of them? A monogenetic disease is a disease that is caused by one point mutation or one gene. For example, cystic fibrosis, CF is caused by, could be caused by one point mutations or, or there are several nucleotide mutations in the CFTR gene. Other mutations could be, for example, a DMD to share muscular dystrophy, which is caused by a point mutation, SMA. There are thousands of point mutation or monogenetic diseases um, in the catalog. And if we collectively look at all of them, even though they're very rare, collectively all of them together uh, sum up to uh, a reasonable uh, risk uh, for the future baby. Would you say that your genetic tests uh, should be used specifically to detect point mutations, or would you say that your test is developed to be versatile, so it could be used to detect monogenic diseases and also chromosomal mutations as well? So our resolution could see point mutations, but could also see large changes because we read the entire DNA from beginning to end. We can also see copy number variations, for example, changes in the number of, of genes. It could identify a very large deletions or translocations if one part of the chromosomes move to another side of the, of the chromosomes. We can identify the entire spectrum of changes in the DNA. Can you explain why you have to wait between 10 to 12 weeks into a woman's pregnancy to perform this blood test? So we're waiting. First of all, we took uh, week 10 because at week 10 also the chorionic uh, villus sampling takes place. And as a control in some of our experiments, we used the CVS test as a reference to uh, the blood test. So when the uh, pregnant woman came in, woman came in to, to undergo the CVS test, we also asked the physician to take a blood test so we could compare one to one. We are aiming to bring our test to a lower week. At week 10, as, as I mentioned, uh, that those are when the, uh, some of the women come to, to be examined, but but the, uh, we're trying to bring it to a lower week, uh, maybe week, possibly week five, where 
an even smaller amount of the embryo DNA is circulating in the mother's blood and if we could use our highly sensitive DNA reading machines, we might be able to recapitulate the uh, embryo's DNA from beginning to end, even at an earlier stage. At the later stage, beyond week 10, it's also possibly, obviously, it's even easier because at some point, up to 30% of the circulating DNA in the mother's blood is uh, originated from the embryo DNA. Uh, how long into the pregnancy would you say that there would be any kind of concentration of fetal DNA in the mother's blood? Does it start from week one or later? Okay, so we haven't tried week one. You know, we are attempting to, to test it in week five or maybe even week four. It uh, gradually increases with the weeks. We can say that it also differs from uh, one woman to the other. Some of them have a larger fraction, others have a smaller fraction. It's not quite known why some have more, others have less. It's known, for example, in obese women, they have a smaller fraction of fetal DNA. It's still uh, not known why. Okay, so ideally 10 weeks is when you can start to see a a significant concentration of the fetal DNA, at least enough to perform a blood test. Yes, totally. It's it's also a, a reasonable time to intervene uh, in the pregnancy if required. It's the first trimester. So is the goal of your lab to implement this test in clinics or provide it as an option for the general public? We're an academic lab, so we develop future drugs and future tests and biomarkers. What we do is that we, we give our... our our studies to our technology transfer office. We have several patents on these technologies and then they license it out to particular companies or firms that are interested. We have one company that, that has spun up, spun out of our lab already. This is located in uh, Framingham in Massachusetts. This is another company now that we're trying to spin off, idea trying to spin off from our lab. And hopefully, some some uh, someone will pick it up and and uh, bring it to the clinic eventually. Okay. So, what do you think the implications of the study will be? Do you feel like in a certain amount of time this test will be available to the public? I believe that with the right guidance, this could reach the clinic in about two years. I think that that it's extremely exciting. I think that it should be taken very cautiously. For example, I would suggest that the first test would include only the extremely detrimental mutations that should be detected in the first trimester, and and this information should be conveyed, obviously, to the genetic counselors and the physicians, and they should discuss and contact the family and understand the implications of these mutations before any actions is taken. Would you recommend this test to the public? I personally would recommend, yes, this test to be taken by every pregnant woman. Every pregnant woman. So not just women who um, may have a genetic history that would make them a concern for their, for their future baby. So given that we could select you know, a handful of extremely rare but extremely severe mutations and that this is a non-invasive test, so there's no risk in it, 
and that that this is an early stage, this is the first trimester. I, I believe that this should be a widespread test. So is your lab uh, currently looking to perform further research on these developments, on these methods that you've created so far? Yes, certainly. I have several students still working on it on from different angles, improving sensitivity and specificity, looking at the different types of mutations, using machine learning to improve the decision-making on each of these mutations. We're looking at it from an academic perspective, but there's certainly a lot of information that could eventually reach the clinic and you'd be, would be very useful in making decisions in these cases. Dr. Shamron, thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Jane Tiller or Noam Shamron, you can check out their links and social media on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 